You're listening to Healing with Purpose, a show that brings you wholehearted conversations for self-healers with your hosts, Lydia and Sarah. We're just two gals in our 30s trying to figure out our own selves while also trying to help others in our day jobs as counselors. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome. Sarah and I are here again for another episode of Healing with Purpose. And today we're going to be talking about, um, I guess, irrational beliefs would be one way to call it, or automatic negative thoughts. And we're going to talk to you guys about today, what are automatic negative thoughts? How do you recognize they're happening? How do you reframe them? And we're going to be using an approach um, that's similar to or founded in cognitive behavioral therapy, but also some of this is going to be based in like a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Um, That's a lot of really fancy terms to say that, like we've mentioned on this podcast before, we have our inner critic, and our inner critic sometimes says helpful and unhelpful things to us, usually unhelpful things, and we're here today to kind of uproot and look at what are some of those unhelpful negative thinking processes that we all have and how do we learn how to recognize them, um, be aware of the consequences of them, what thinking trap maybe we're in, how to reframe them, all that good stuff. So Sarah and I are back with some examples from our own life and we're going to walk you through how we dealt with some of the Interestingly, like when we were talking about our examples, we realized that the ones that we chose, I think, are things that a lot of people actually experience. So we hope that this is relatable to you today. Um, So that's what we've got on this show for you. And we're super excited to be back. Yeah, so we're going to jump in um, and I'm going to explain a little bit about what an automatic negative thought is. So typically in my practice, this is often where I start with certain clients that I feel like it's an applicable intervention with. And I usually give the analogy early on about lifting weights. So I want you to imagine that you are holding a five or 10 pound weight in both of your hands about to do a bicep curl. And Think about your left hand represents the negative thinking pattern. And let's pretend that right now, the only bicep that you're working out is that left bicep. So all you're doing is lifting that left bicep, strengthening it. And before you know it, that negative thinking pattern is super strong. That that bicep, bicep is stronger than your right bicep. And think about the right bicep that hasn't been working out and hasn't been lifting that weight that that's actually like a positive reframe or a positive thinking pattern um, or what sometimes is called a pat. So a pat is a positive, um, what is this, Sarah? I just went totally blank. A positive automatic thought. Sorry, my mind just totally went blank. (laughs) So we've got the negative and the positive in these two arms. And so part of what we're trying to do in what we're teaching you guys today is learning how to recognize when am I in a negative thinking pattern that I'm lifting this left bicep And how do I do something called thought stopping, which is, I kind of hold up my hand sometimes and I'm like, we're not doing this today. Like I'm stopping this thought in its tracks. And then we literally start to lift that right bicep and try to integrate that positive thinking pattern into what it is that um, the situation maybe that's been triggered. I think as we were preparing for this, you brought up a really good point in letting clients know the 
automatic negative thoughts really, it's not that we're going to make them disappear. They're not going to just go away, but that we are also strengthening the positive ones, that we also have an, a now a new process for when they come up, well, what do we do with them? Yeah, that's a good piece, Sarah. Thank you for bringing that into the conversation that I think sometimes that we have this assumption that I shouldn't have any negative thinking patterns. Um, isn't that interesting? I just use an irrational belief to talk about irrational beliefs. I just <laughs> use a should statement, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But there's this idea that, you know, I, I, if I have an, a negative thought that something is wrong or I need to get rid of this or I'm not going to be happy until I get rid of this, when in reality, like you just said, Sarah, everybody has automatic negative thoughts. And we call them automatic negative thoughts because they're literally automatic within two seconds, they can pop into your head. And before you know it, you're going down this spiral into a very negative place. And you're, you're like, what just happened? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we can pinpoint the trigger of what brought up that thought. And sometimes we can't depending on, you know, how much awareness or um, ability to kind of think back on what happened a few minutes before. But I think it is important to know that they don't ever go away. That's a very good point. And, and not to feel shame if we have negative thoughts because everyone has them. Even therapists Absolutely. have negative thoughts. Because <laughs> you'll find out soon. Yeah. <laughs> and so the first thing that we're going to talk uh, about is how to know when you are experiencing an irrational belief or, or an automatic negative thought. Um, one thing that I really like to do with clients is in introducing this topic is letting them know that what we're doing is just bringing awareness. When we talk about the cognitive distortions today and we look at them, this isn't, well, look at how much you do it. Look at how often it is. We're just bringing awareness. Wow, I didn't realize I did it that much. And we're also bringing awareness to how, they're gonna, how they can create a spiral, how they, how they kind of cause us to go down the rabbit hole very quickly. Um, so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think about... Um, just how much they, they cause us to be more rigid, right? We, how do, clients will say, how do I know when I'm having one? It's usually when we are pulled to these extremes, as we'll go over, you, we can keep in mind how they pull you to an extreme, to a place of where you're losing acceptance of yourself and compassion. I think that those are two really big things that go along with when you're having one, mm -hmm. is that you are very much so pulled to an extreme and the inner critic is taking over. Yeah, I think, like you said, the rigidity, I think the rigidity is the inner critic, right? Like if you stop and observe yourself for a minute, you'll find your thought patterns are, um, which one of the examples I was just going to give is all or nothing, right? That, that sometimes when we end up in an all or nothing thinking pattern where we're using the words always and never, we're in a very rigid place in that time. And so all or nothing thinking is actually a cognitive distortion. And there's sort of these thinking traps that we have to look out for. Because if we find ourselves saying always or never or being very black and white in our thinking patterns, then that's a way for us to stop and self-reflect and say, what, what's happening for me right now that I'm saying to my partner, you always do this or you never do that or we're believing about ourselves. I always say the wrong thing or I never show up at the right time. If we're using those, then likely we're in an all or nothing thinking trap. And like Sarah's saying, that's a super rigid place to be because once we work our way out of that trap, we can objectively think that, well, I, I don't do that all the time. 
It might be sometimes or often, but that's a less rigid way of talking about something. Mm-hmm. In a way that it's, it, it's not just this situation that causes something to, to trigger us. We take it to an extreme of saying, well, it always does this. Mm-hmm. It, it just never lets me do this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so watch out for all, always or never. That would be a sign of um, a cognitive distortion. And so the second distortion that we wanted to offer you today is something called should statements. And we talked a lot about guilt and shame on the last podcast. And typically should statements are going to be an indication that we are implying guilt or shame in a situation. I should have gotten a better grade on that test. Therefore, I'm guilty or I feel guilty. I feel shame that I didn't do better. I could have studied more, right? So that's a thinking trap that we can get in or... um, I should be, I mean, enter the, enter the descriptor, right? Skinnier, fitter, um, happier, healthier, better. I mean, you can pretty much add anything you want into that blank. And we have probably thought that about ourselves at some point. We all have those should statements of the ways that we wish we were that we're not. And when we make those statements, we end up feeling shame and guilt that we're not what we think we should be. Uh, the third one is um, discounting the positive. And so when we are discounting the positive, we are recognizing only the negative aspects of a situation while ignoring the positive parts. And so when we are in this space, we are focusing on one piece of negative feedback and then forgetting or discarding all of the positive ones. Um, and so an example of this might be that, well, well, you did a great job, but I would improve on this. And then all we focus on is there was a thing of improvement. They, I couldn't even accept the positive things I did mm-hmm. because someone said, but maybe focus on this next time or try this next time. It just, it discounts all the positivity and all the work. Yeah, we amplify that one piece of constructive criticism or negative feedback I think the inner critic like lash latches onto it and it's like that's fuel for me you know so it if we have that strong inner critic at play and we're thinking very rigidly then we're going to grab on to that one negative thing and say see see there's the proof that I'm not good enough or there's the proof that whatever and so discounting the positive is another one to look out for One thing that I do uh, before we move on to the next one that I think is really important on discounting the positive is that we had talked about in the the guilt and in the shame that we like miss those moments um, sometimes to like build trust or be proud of self or like create this other space that we want. And so I feel like when we do discount the positive that we we miss the opportunity to be a witness to something for ourselves. Mm, That's a beautiful tie together. I can see what you mean. Like when it's like that's the choice we're making, right? I'm choosing to discount the positive. Therefore, I'm choosing to not allow this positive force or this thing that I've created or done to be a bigger um, statement in my life or to make more space for that to just be. That sometimes we cut off its air supply. Like we right. choose to do that. Yeah. It's interesting they said cut off the air supply. And in my <laughs> mind, I was thinking that. And then I also thought like closing the door. Like uh-huh. I don't, I'm not ready to see it. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, and I, this reminds me a little bit of the example that I'm going to give later about my um, thinking traps and stuff. But 
I think sometimes that when we've been through a lot of difficult things, we start to overgeneralize, which is another thinking trap where we find ourselves saying like, nothing's gone right for me in three years. Like, and, and we just have this outdated belief that nothing is ever going to go right for me again. We're in that really rigid place of not being able to see that maybe some opportunities are opening, but I'm so hurt or discouraged or deflated from whatever happened in the last month, two years, 10 years that I am unable to even widen my gaze to see that these things are trying to walk into my life, but I'm shutting that door or, you know, taking the oxygen away from it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes is where being aware of these thinking traps is so important. And we're going to talk about this more later, but that we have such power over what we give attention to in our lives. And if we're in a place of thinking so negatively all the time, we might be missing the things around us that are changing and we're still in this outdated mindset. Right, that we're only using the inner critic to update all the information. But like you had talked about last time with all the pieces of the pie, yeah, that there are more pieces to us. Yeah, there totally are, yeah. I had a super interesting conversation. This is a side tangent. Sorry. <laughs> I had this super interesting conversation with somebody um, recently about how the different parts of us sometimes are created because one part exists, another part is created. So like if I have a part of me that feels guilt and shame about something, if if that part of me gets exhausted or I can't explain the narrative in my mind doesn't fit the guilt and shame narrative anymore, another part can sometimes be created to like rationalize or pick up does that make sense so like mm -hmm. all these parts are like in this ecosystem together and like we create them to try to make sense of the world and if a whole bunch of really terrible stuff happens to you or you have a span of time where like you just can't catch a break sometimes a part of you grows or is created or another one is created to compensate for that and before you know it you're like in this <laughs> weird narrative of parts within you that are trying to explain your situation and it 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 can be very unhelpful. Yeah, I could see where that could be so confusing mm -hmm. and overwhelming For and sure. all of those things that we often hear people say. For sure. Yeah, that's actually a really good example. One of the reasons why I love parts work so much is because I think it allows us to almost take a step back and kind of like visually imagine like, oh, this is just this part of me. It does not define all of who I am. It's just one part. And I can work on that one part and improve my life by widening my awareness around this or how I fall into thinking traps in this part or when this part is trying to run the show, what triggers it? Why is it acting this way? How do I reroute it? And I think that helps people feel a sense of, um, you know, like accomplishment or, or like, I guess the opposite of hopelessness, right? They have hope that I can do something about this. I'm not like a victim of all these parts of me that are constantly in conflict or trying to, you know, minimize or maximize or explain my, my situation. Mm -hmm. And then it almost feels, as you're describing it, it almost feels like, I like the word that you use, reroute it. Because when we reroute it, then it feels like we almost have a path or can contain it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and containment is a resource. So that's really applicable. Um, so yeah, tangent. <laughs> we'll come back to the 
the cognitive distortions, but we'll probably come back to this idea of parts work a little bit later. Um, so, so far we've done all or nothing thinking, should statements, discounting the positive. The next one, Sarah, is magnification, um, which is also known as or can be minimization. And so when we are in this distortion or in this place, we are exaggerating or minimizing the importance of events or character traits. So, for example, um, one might believe that their own achievements are unimportant or that their mistakes are excessively important. Um, and so when this happens, we, we often hear a lot of the yes, buts, like when someone gives you a compliment. Um, yes, but it's really easy for me to, to do that. It's almost like their natural skills or abilities. They don't accept them or write them off because it comes easy to them. Mm-hmm. And so they feel like that's not something that's a big deal because yeah. it comes easy. Yeah. I could see how in that same example, the maximization could work too, because somebody might say, wow, you did such a good job. And you might be like, yeah, but do you have any idea how much work I had to do for this? Like, I could see how that could also blow up into something of like me maximizing how much did I have to do in order to pull this off? Like, you have no idea. Just like we could minimize it and say, oh, it was no big deal. Mm -hmm. And people not know all the stuff that we had to go through in order to make that, you know, a reality. Mm -hmm. I think that's very true. Yeah, true. So next up is catastrophizing, which I think is such a hard, I think it took me like seven years of my professional career to say that word right, catastrophizing. And basically that is a big word that means that we only see the worst possible outcomes of a situation. So let's say you're throwing a party at your house and you have a bunch of people coming over pre-COVID and people get stuck in a traffic jam or there's an accident and, and a whole bunch of people are late to your party. Catastrophizing would be like, plopping down on the couch and looking at your partner and saying the whole party's ruined I can't believe no one's here on time like the food's gonna be cold you know it's sort of like having a gigantic meltdown and just like Sarah was saying earlier we've gone to a very rigid thinking place when that happens instead of being tuned in and flexible and saying you know what it's okay I'm gonna pop the appetizers in the oven we're gonna just get a little bit more ice we're gonna have the band wait a little bit like everything's gonna be fine this is everything's okay and so that is the, the tuned in, connected, accepting place versus the rigid place where we've really blown something up into a bigger thing. Yeah, I, I really am um, hoping that as we're describing it, that you can hear the rigidity so that you can <laughs> recognize it within yourself because it's very easy, I feel like, when we have our own automatic negative thoughts to feel like we're not being rigid, mm-hmm. right? Because we for whatever reason, it's, it is harder to recognize it for yourself. Yeah, it is. It is. That reminds me, I hope my husband doesn't mind that I say this, but um, we have this thing in our family. My husband calls irrational beliefs. He calls them IBs. And so if I say something like, I don't have any friends or something, he'll be like, that's an IB, Lydia. <laughs> I love it. And so we've gotten to this place now in our relationship where we feel really safe to kind of like gently remind each other that like what we're doing is an irrational belief, you know, and like we have the cognitive distortions hanging on our fridge at different times and like I'll gently be like, do you want to go look at the list and see which distortion that you're doing right now? Or he'll say that to me and um as a sidebar, I guess that's what you get when you marry a therapist, <laughs> which I think Sarah and I's husbands can both probably understand. Um, it's kind of like a running joke in our family, but, but yeah, I mean, 
I think if you have a partner, or you have somebody that you're on this journey with, you can allow them to be your accountability person so that we don't stay stuck. And I would expect Sarah, if, if I was stuck in an irrational belief for you to gently say, Hey, let's, let's really look at that. Is that really what's happening right now? And I think ideally we need to create spaces in our communities where we're calling each other in and we're saying, Hey, I see you're struggling. Like what's happening? Is there something, you know, can we talk about like what, are you thinking kind of rigidly right now? What's going on? Help me understand. And I, I'd like to believe that we can create a world where those are the kinds of communities and relationships that we build because like how cool and how healing would that be for us to call each other in and help each other work through those things in a loving way. Mm-hmm. In a place where people can be a witness to helping, like you said, reroute in a way that is, I see you versus, you know, I'm coming down on you or that it not be seen as, um, a should or or yeah. taken taken and interpreted in the, in one of these ways. Yeah, like more guilt and shame. Correct. Right. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and so the last distortion that we're going to share with you guys today is jumping to conclusions. And I, really quick, I want to just say we're giving you guys six cognitive distortions today that we're going to talk about. But there are, I think, are 12 total. Um, we'll put a link on the show notes to all 12 of them if you'd like to read about all of them and see which ones are at play in your life. But the last one we're going to talk about today is jumping to conclusions. And that basically is when we interpret the meaning of a situation with little or no evidence. So an example might be if I walk into a room and I all of a sudden see some people glance at me and start laughing, if I jump to a conclusion, I may say, well, they're laughing at me, they're laughing at what I'm wearing, they're laughing at how I'm walking or any number of things, right? I'm jumping to a conclusion assuming that this person is laughing at me when the likelihood is that they're not. I think that this one happens very, very, very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think especially with... um like a lot of um, adolescents and young adults, you know, like with people who may struggle with social anxiety or things like that. I think that is yeah, a really common one that a lot of people experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Sarah and I are going to jump in and, and we're going to tell you guys a little bit about some, some things that we've encountered in our own lives where a trigger happened, an automatic negative thought happened and, and the thinking trap we fell into and all that stuff. So just like we've done in past episodes, we're going to kind of lay this out for you in a framework that you can use for yourself. So the first thing that I'm going to talk about today is a trigger. So the trigger for my situation was um, right after, I think last week on the podcast, I had shared that I had been, um, I'd gone through a divorce several years ago and I was living in El Paso and I had shared that this is sort of a a random place to kind of be moved to. I had no family here. I had a few, a few friends, but a pretty small support system and not a lot of people that I knew very intimately. And so at that time in my life, I developed this automatic negative thought or aunt that I have to do it all on my own or people never show up for me. And Oh, those are really, really hard. Those are hard times. I know I felt so lonely and so isolated and And at the time, I don't think that I realized that I was in a place of a cognitive distortion or in sort of negative thinking patterns. But I remember at the time, I felt like this is just my reality. And and even looking back, I do still feel like that was true. That was my reality at the time. I didn't have family nearby. I didn't have a lot of close friends. It was a very painful and difficult time for me. And 
And now I look back on that because at the time, a question you can use to assess how strong a belief is, is you can ask yourself, how strongly do I believe this from one to 100? And at the time, I know that I believed those negative thoughts pretty strongly, probably like an 80 to a 90, I believe those things. Um, but I, I guess I want to tell our listeners and, and you know whoever might need to hear this, that there are times in our lives where that all does feel very, very true. And what I noticed happened was as, as I worked my way out of that place, I would then meet or have relationships with people that had the opportunity to be very loving and supportive and connecting. And just like we were talking about rigidity earlier, I continue to operate from this rigid place of I have to do it all on my own and people will never show up for me. And so like the doors and we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, doors were opening for me, you know, a year, two years after this divorce happened where people did want to show up for me, but I was still stuck in that rigid thought pattern of people never show up for me. I have to do it all on my own. And I caused myself a lot of suffering during that time because I didn't know how to receive that. I, I didn't know how, and I needed to update that negative thinking pattern with something more positive. Like it's okay for me to receive help and love from others. It's safe for me to be vulnerable with other people. And those were some of the reframes that I had to use And so using this situation, I want you to think about maybe there's a trigger, there's a negative thinking pattern that comes up for you, identifying the thinking trap that you fall in, which for me at that time was jumping to conclusions. There was some all or nothing thinking, some minimization, discounting the positive stuff that was trying to come into my life. And then ask yourself, how strongly do I believe this from one to 100? And then my most favorite question is, where's the proof? And this is the one that I think helped me work out of that the most because there came a place in my life where I had to <laughs> I had to keep asking myself, where's the proof that no one's trying to show up for you? And then I would sit there and say, well, this person offered to help me with this and this person came over to support me with this and this person, you know, calls me to check in on me. And I had to really look around and think about like, well, there isn't any proof that people aren't showing up for me anymore. Like there's love here now. And that took me a long time to unravel that. Just like we were talking about the weights earlier, it took me so long to stop lifting that one weight and to say, you've got to update what's going on around you because this isn't your reality anymore. Mm -hmm. You had to be a witness to it too and and start picking up the other weight. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I suppose I share that example because I think sometimes we do fall into negative thinking traps because we legitimately are going through very hard things. And I don't ever want people to feel like the hard things that they're going through aren't valid or real or that how these negative thinking traps were created was like false or unrealistic. Like I truly believe that we go through hard things and we end up in a negative place and then we find ourselves in therapy trying to work ourselves out of that place. I don't think a lot of this is like totally self-created. I agree. I, even as you were saying it, it it sort of like it gave light to the fact that last week we were giving light and shining light on shame and guilt. And we talked about that shame and guilt can bring about the inner critic. And then yeah. now we're shining light on this is how the inner critic then makes us more rigid. So we can yeah. kind of see that whole process developing of these just being mindful of that 
when things happen in our lives and if we experience shame and guilt, that this inner critic can then take over and then push us to these rigid extremes um, and, yeah. and, and just bringing that awareness to, to that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I try really hard in the last few years to look at, you know, if we look at these, these triggers or these ants as sort of like back and through the lens of parts work, at the time in my life where these negative thoughts developed, there was a part of me that was deeply lonely and deeply hurt and deeply sad. And these negative thinking patterns, I truly believe that they were at times trying to protect me because I, I needed to pick myself back up and I needed to find my way out of that, a very lonely situation. And there wasn't a lot of people that could have truthfully helped me with that. Like I had to walk that path. And I like to look back at that time or that part of me that was really resilient that helped me get through that. Even if it, even if I developed some atypical ways of coping to deal with that atypical situation, I try to look back and say, you know what? I, I needed that at that time because that's how I had to pick myself up. I remember I used to wake up in the morning shortly after my divorce and I would have to tell myself, put your foot on the floor. Okay, put your left foot on the floor. Okay, sit up in bed, stand up, walk to the bathroom, brush your damn teeth. Like I used to have to baby step myself through all of that. And, there, and that was lonely and there wasn't any person who could have made me feel less lonely in that. And so I try to look back on that time in my life and that part of me and say, I know I developed some negative thinking patterns from that, but I'm also very grateful to that part of my life and those thinking patterns because they helped me work my way out of that. And I have to appreciate that there was something within me that found a way to help me cope and deal with that. And then as I worked my way out of that, it's looking back and saying, you know what? I don't need these anymore. Now these are a hindrance to helping me move forward. Mm -hmm. Now they're keeping me from connecting to the loving people who are standing here with their arms wide open saying, I'm here for you, you know? And, and, and that was just such an interesting process to unfold for me and to witness like, wow, our bodies are super wise, you know, they know how to get us through things. They do. I, I really appreciate you sharing um, your journey with us because I think that so many people, one, can relate to it. And at the same time, that there is this truth to that when you are hurting, that it's, it's okay to be in that place. But I think that the part that you were talking about was also recognizing when it no longer served you. Yeah. And then this process of healing and unraveling. Yeah. That there is this, you, you get to a point where, okay, I'm ready for all of that unraveling to occur. Yeah. And I'm ready to move forward. But yeah. that may not be today. Right yeah. It may not be today. I think there's such a balancing in it too. Like I remember being very aware, um, like when I met my husband and we were dating, it was the first like real relationship I had after my divorce. And I remember balancing this idea of like, I have to maintain some of this wall right now in order for me to feel safe, but I also have to let a little bit of it down in order to let this person in and see if it can be a safe, safe and trusting relationship and to see if I can give a little bit to this person to show me that they're going to show up for me. And so there was this like really interesting like balance that I kept doing. And sometimes I stumbled p 
pretty, you know, greatly in this venture of snapping the door shut and being like, no, it's fine. I'll do it by myself. And then I would see the look on his face and be like, oh, that was inappropriate, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And then I'd have to self-reflect and be like, why, why did I shut that door? What, what did it bring up for me? And when I would self-reflect, it would be that belief of like, if we break up, I have to go back to that deeply lonely place again where there's no one here to help me. And that was terrifying for a really long time at the beginning of our of our relationship. And so I think that we just have to be really patient with ourselves as we're unraveling this stuff because it's not like we wake up one day and we're like, I'm going to be safe and trusting of everyone. I think we talked about this last week. Like we don't, our heart chakra doesn't just open one day and we're like, let all the love and the light in. I wish it worked like that, but it doesn't. We have to constantly be giving a little bit, breaking down those walls a little bit, and then allowing people opportunities to show us that we can trust them and to update those negative thinking patterns. Mm-hmm. But then also allowing yourself to not be pulled by the rigid belief. Uh-huh. And then we go back to that flexibility of, oh, okay, this is a moment to trust him. Yeah. This is a moment where I can say it's okay. Yeah. It's safe. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about vulnerability on this podcast in different episodes, but I 100% think that that's what it is. Like we have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable and being vulnerable is not being rigid. We can't be tuned in and connected and open with somebody when we're rigid. When we're rigid, we're shut down, closed off, walled off. And so it, it requires us to move into a vulnerable place where maybe we've been hurt And I always tell people about relationships that this is the hardest part about being vulnerable in a romantic partnership with someone is that there is no guarantee ever that it's going to work out. Mm -hmm. But we have to continually find a way to say, it's okay for me to slowly be vulnerable with this person and give this a shot, even if I'm desperately scared that I'm going to get hurt again. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and like you said, not being too rigid and closing all those doors and saying, I'm not going to open up to anyone ever. Cause there was definitely a day where I felt that way. But then allowing yourself to find a, a place where you feel like you're comfortable mm-hmm. with it and that you can allow yourself to be open to receiving it. For sure. Which only you will know how, sure. how much you're willing to and wanting to in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I got some really good advice when I first met my husband and we were dating. Somebody said to me, good relationships take a lot of time to develop. And I always held on to that because I, I felt like we're not just going to one day wake up and open up and just be, I mean, maybe we are, I don't know. I wasn't in the place where I could do that. So I decided that like, just give a little bit, give a little bit more. And there was times where I did give some and then I would pull back because I thought, oh, that was too much because I was trying to understand how to be open without feeling deeply hurt again, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I just think there's just kind of this interesting dance that we do around that process. I agree. I agree. It's like, how do we unravel it in a way that doesn't feel like it's too much, Mm -hmm. but in a way that feels safe? Exactly. Yeah. So I encourage, you know, those listening to, to assess that for yourself. And this could be a partnership, a friendship, maybe a healing relationship with your parents or a child. Like, look at what, what, what can I give? That's my favorite question is what can I give? And if the answer is I can give 
a little bit of openness right now, then I'll give that. If it's I can give making this person dinner and showing them I love that way, I'll give it that way. If it's I have nothing to give, I'm totally depleted, then I'm going to take a step back and take care of myself first before I re-engage because I think that when we're not processing that, we're more likely to maybe slam the door shut or share too much and then feel regret about it or, you know, whatever. So I think that's a good way to assess it. Like, what can I give? That's a really helpful way. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, So I'm going to share my own um, example. And so one thing that is a big trigger for me is um, feeling that I always have to be busy. Um, One growing up, and and this is something that we even joke with my mom now about, um, but it's that, you know, if she was up, we were up doing something. It's like, if she were to look back at you, why am I up and why are you sitting? And so (laughs) most weekends we were up doing things uh, until she would sit down until she was tired and would rest. And then we would give, okay, then we can sit. But there, I, I did very much so internalize it as feeling that I always have to be busy and that in order to be productive or feel a sense of accomplishment of self, that that only comes through being busy. And so some of those um, automatic negative thoughts that really uh, I've had to work through and, st- and at times still come up, but is that I'm not productive if I'm resting or that I should be checking things off my list every day. I'm someone who is does really well with lists and, uh, you know, love organizations. So for me, checking things off feels like, yeah, I'm getting things done. <laughs> I got this. I slayed this day. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so one of the, th- the thinking trap that I get myself into is just really minimizing the need for rest um, and, and really, really getting stuck in should statements that I should be busy, I should be doing more. Um, often before, it, it doesn't happen as much anymore, but when my husband used to ask me, you know, on a day off, what are you doing today? It was very stressful for me because I felt like I should give him this list of things that I'm going to do today <laughs> on my day off. I need to show him all my value through the things that right. I did. <laughs> I want him to be proud and be like, wow. And it's funny that we're laughing about it right now because like in the moment, it doesn't feel funny. No. But as we're talking about it right now, like I'm glad that we can laugh about it because it's like I realize how like silly that is. And how but, rigid. And how rigid it is. But in the moment, it sometimes feels so real. Absolutely. I, I remember like, and I, and I even had to ask him, can you please ask it in a different way of, you know, what is it, what is it that you need today more than what are you going to do today? Because it feels ah, like it put pressure. I like that. That's even a good reframe of like, how do we relate to one another? Instead of what are you going to do today? Because that implies I need to do something to be valuable to you. Correct. Yeah. It's such like for me and my mind is like instant. Like if Uh if when he would say that, it just felt like, like I should give a report. Yeah. Well, I mean, do implies like productivity. What are you doing? And if, and and what a way to connect with each other by, I connect with you by, by knowing what you're doing Mm -hmm. instead of like you said, needs, which is so much more intuitive and loving. Like, what do you need today? What do you need? And it invites Mm -hmm. you to say, I need to rest. And then I can say it in Uh a way that doesn't necessarily trigger these should statements. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and I remember that I really did believe this strongly, like, you know, right, I would say like almost 90 or above, um, which would also contribute to me saying yes to everything, because then it felt like 
Oh, sure. I can put that on my list. Oh, sure. I can do that. Like, I'm How many listeners out there raise your hand if this is you? Because I'm over here raising my hand right now. <laughs> right? That strong and powerful women are always busy. Uh-huh. Well, that's such an irrational belief, right? That like the only way to be a strong, powerful woman is to be busy all the time, grinding all the time, like proving yourself. And it's like, what? Where the hell did that come from? Exactly. What happened to being intuitive, like nurturing women, you know, like, why isn't that a value? I, absolutely. I, we're, I don't know where it got lost, but I think that through reframing it, but then also having other women as an example, like yourself and, mm -hmm. and other colleagues that we have and friends to see them, to be a witness to like rest being okay yeah. is, is what's really been helpful and helped to normalize it. Yeah. When somebody, it's shocking to me because I remember one time I think I texted you something and you had said, no, I'm just going to rest today. Like, oh, that's so <laughs> wonderful. Gee, isn't it funny how I do that too, where I text somebody and their response is like, oh, I want to use that. Why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I give my permission to say that? <laughs> but, yeah. it, but it does help to, to normalize it. Um, and so a, a big reframe for me was, you know, I'm exhausted and unhappy. Rest is the only thing that will re-energize my body mm -hmm. and really allowing myself to believe that. Because before yeah. I've always felt like, yes, yes, yes. And, and we hear that example a lot, right? Like a cell phone charge, like you're depleted and, and you're <laughs> going to plug it into a wall. And, and I understand that. But I think that it's not until I accepted the belief that rest is okay yeah. and that rest is the only way I'm going to repair and, and sort of, and fill my own bucket. Yeah. And I wonder how, when you said rest is okay, how that almost subtly or not so subtly gave you permission to say, if rest is okay, then it's okay for me to do it and to not be busy. Right. It's like you gave yourself permission mm -hmm. to have that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't easy. And I say <laughs> it now, but I mean, I've fought it a lot for years, yeah. for years. I fought it. Well, for how many of us is worth tied to productivity? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think 2020 taught a lot of us about how we were too busy in so many areas of our lives and really shine the light onto this without going too deep into the rabbit hole on capitalism. But unfortunately, the concept of capitalism is you produce in order to create value and that is how our entire society we live in a capitalist consumer-based society where we're constantly told be producing be producing and I think it's gotten so much worse even in the internet age and you know think about it like Sarah and I can work from anywhere really we can have our laptops and, and do things from anywhere and so then it becomes well if I can work from anywhere then I should be working everywhere mm -hmm. instead of now we consciously have to have a ton of boundaries, like self-created boundaries to say, I need to close my laptop and rest today because I could work, but I don't have to. This stuff will all be there tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but something this last year taught me and some of the sort of women mentors that I have around me have taught me a lot about when my body's asking me to rest, if I rest during that time, I typically end up more recharged when I'm feeling better than if I try to push and bulldoze and grind through that exhaustion. One, I'm not productive. I don't get that much done. I, and then I just sort of drag out this like 
I don't know, for, for days and weeks, sometimes this like exhausted mentality. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not, I'm not pleased or happy or excited or joyful about what I'm doing. I'm dreading it. And I so think how, like when we give ourselves permissions, permission to rest, when we're asking for it or when we need it, we can then find ourselves feeling recharged the next day to wake up and go do our jobs or, or fulfill the roles in our lives that we have. I agree. I, and one thing, um, that I want to comment on also that that was helpful for me, and this has only been probably, you know, in the past month or two, but even on my days off, if I do decide, you know, okay, I'm going to do these things, I also tell myself I'm not going to do these things today because it's very easy for me to then say, well, I finished those early. Let me just go do these (laughs) and these and these, and it just continues throughout the whole day. And so I have to be able to say, it's okay. I'm not going to do these things today. And I have time during the week to do them. Mm -hmm. And I almost have to separate it out because I myself will go down that rabbit hole. That's such a good idea. Like if you know yourself really well of like, where am I going to try to push myself? It's like, yeah, make a list of, I will not do these things today. Mm -hmm. I will not return phone calls. I will not answer emails. I will not get on social media or whatever the boundary is that we need in order to gain rest. Mm-hmm. That's such a good point. I never thought to do that. I will not list, but that makes a lot of sense. Yes, because then it's it's okay because I already told myself I, I'm not going to do this yeah, today. You've set the expectation <laughs> for yourself, right? <laughs> it's a lot of self talking here. Yeah. Well, that's all what we're talking about today, right? Is reframing self talk and trying to understand ourselves. So, absolutely, yeah. Well, um. Yeah, that's, I guess, what we had for you guys today. Yes, thank you. I feel like 45 minutes went by in like two minutes. I agree. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you guys again for listening to um, another episode of Healing with Purpose. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to put a link in the podcast show notes where you can access the list of all 12 cognitive distortions. So that way you can reflect on them and learn a little bit more about them. Um, we will also put the little, um, sort of self-reflection exercise that Sarah and I did. We'll put some of the prompts in there for you all. If you want to go through it and, and look at some of that for yourself. Um, so yeah, we'll leave that all there for you guys. If you want to follow us on social media, um, this is Lydia. I am at thrivecounseling.ep. And I'm Sarah, and this is at mindful.wellness.counselingep. And next week, um, on the show, we're going to talk a little bit about coping skills and resources. So that's sort of the next step of how Sarah and I visualize walking us through this. And so we're going to talk about what do you do when you're triggered? How do you cope? How can you um, develop your own, whether it's grounding resources or somatic body-based resources or traditional coping skills like journaling? We're going to talk all about kind of how do you ground, cope, and resource yourself through some of these really difficult things that we've been talking about the last few weeks. So we hope that you will listen in for that. And please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. We appreciate your feedback. And if there's any topics that you would like us to cover on the podcast, please feel free to email us at healingwithpurposepodcast at gmail.com. Okay, bye.